0: You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We are digging into 2 Timothy uh, this morning as we continue to walk through 2 Timothy, This um, looking at our foundations in belief, our foundations as a church. Uh, if you've got your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, starting in verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He's just read this little poem about people denying Christ and Him denying us, but about Christ remaining faithful, for Christ refuses to deny Himself. And this is what he says, um, the Apostle Paul to Timothy, this is God's Word. He says, "...remind them of these things, and charge them before God, the people of God, not to quarrel about words." which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it'll lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection's already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal the lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the lord depart from iniquity let's uh, pray together dear lord uh your foundation stands help us today to rightly handle your word of truth help um Help us to hear from your word and figure out how do we find your foundation? How do we look to Jesus uh, in the midst of our own trials uh, and in our own life situations um, right now? In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, I've got one point for you today. I don't have three points in a poem. I have just one. One point. God's firm foundation stands. That's it. You can go home. One big point. And as we try to see that, hopefully you already heard that in the passage in that last verse. As we try to see that, I want to first go to the Old Testament. I want to first take us to Numbers 16. Uh, If you've got your Bible and want to turn there, go for it. But it's this really interesting story. You know, Numbers gets a bad rap because it's terribly named. In Hebrew, it's called the Book of the Wilderness. A lot more interesting. Um, In Numbers, God's people are, like you might find yourself, wandering around in a wilderness. A spiritual one and a literal one. They're wandering around in the desert, and um, they are out there in the desert, you know, between here and Phoenix, there's nothing, nothing nice. They're out there in this um, desert, wandering around a million people, and they've been slaves, but now they're free. They have gold and possessions, but they have no food. And they're constantly questioning, where on earth is God in this situation, how could God possibly, how is his foundation of faith, how do we possibly cling to him in moments like these? And uh, so they're, they're doing that. And in number 16, we have this really weird and interesting story where um, they, they start to question his authority. They start to question God's foundation in the priesthood itself. So if you remember in the Old Testament, right, they don't all get to offer sacrifices and be priests and pray You know they're not quite worshipping the same way that we do, they worship by going to the tabernacle and offering up sacrifices to God and the priests do this and the priests are made up of the tribe of Levites one of the 12 tribes, but they're really made up of Aaron and his family and there's this great uh, challenge in number 16 where these guys, the, this guy named Korah and his sons um, they get together and they say you know Moses, I think you've gone a little too far. You picked your own brother as the priest. Seems like there's a little bit of favorites going on there. They they say, "I'm not." Are you sure, Moses, that this is God's plan? That only one guy gets to be the high priest, and he only gets to go into the holy of holies once a year. Like, aren't we all holy? Like, isn't that what you're you're calling us to be—a holy people? Right? Kor is a little bit right because that's going to be true in the New Testament. But he's he's also kind of wrong. And he says they have this showdown. That's this an easy picture to imagine. Moses says, well, we'll figure this out. God made Aaron the priest. That's at least what Moses thinks. And so how about you guys get your little censers. If you've ever been to a church that has the incense, you can picture the censer. It's this thing that holds uh, some charcoal and some incense and things. There's a chain and they swing it around and smoke comes out. We don't really do that at Holy Cross. But uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever been to a church that does that, they have a censer. It's part of what a priest does. And they get their censer, and they go and stand Aaron and his sons on one side, Korah and the 250 people with him on their side, to figure out where's the foundation of the priesthood. Is it Aaron, or is it Korah and their sons? Is it, who, is, who is it going to be that God has put his authority into? And they go and they stand at the entrance of the tabernacle, and Moses is between them, and they're going to find out who holds God's authority When we're in the wilderness, where is our foundation? And we're going to pause there. We'll come back to it. I promise this relates to our passage in 2 Timothy. Uh, We'll come back to it, though. As we look at 2 Timothy, we're asking the same question, though. Where is our foundation? You know, who is God chosen? Where is the thing that we, what is the thing we go to when all else seems shaky? Where do we turn when our lives are upside down and we don't know where to look? Uh, what, are, what are the basic truths we hold on to? What's our foundation as a church? And that's what he's talking about this morning in 2 Timothy. So uh, verse 14, just right off the bat, our first couple of verses, Paul is going to be talking to Timothy about how to talk. He talks to Timothy about how to talk. He says, you know, remind them of these things. The previous verse was about people that deny Christ and God remaining faithful, even when we're faithless. He says, remind them, remind the church that God remains faithful to us. Remind the church of these basic gospel truths. You know, this was important because if you don't remember or know the context of this letter, Paul the apostle, he's in Rome. He's in prison. He's bound in chains. He says he's in a he's in um, chains, and, and he's also writing this letter. And Timothy is a pastor far, far away on the other side of the Mediterranean, in Ephesus. Timothy is going through a church split. He's going through people leaving the church because Paul's in chains. They're saying, "Well, we can't trust Paul. He's in chains." And he, you know how how do we ho- put our hope in him? And uh, he, he writes, Paul writes to Timothy with a lot of commands. In this verse, he says, charge uh, them not to quarrel about words. He says, um, rightly handle the word of truth. And he says, avoid irreverent babble. All three of these are really three different ways to say, as my mom would have said, watch your mouth. <laughs> All three of them are really strong ways to say, be careful uh, with the words that come out of your mouth, Timothy. Um, you know, he he says you really need to think about what you say and, and how you say it. Uh, verse 14 he says, don't quarrel, don't fight, don't bicker about words. Uh, we might think, I might first reading this think this is like telling us not to, spend a lot of time on definitions. I don't think that's what it means. We're going to have to keep reading to figure out, though, what it means. In verse 15, he says, rightly handle the word of truth. This is a bit of a Greek word picture here. We don't know exactly what image he's drawing up, but it's it's a picture of cutting in the correct way. Some people think he's talking about cutting marble in the correct way. Some people think he's talking about cutting a road into the side of a mountain. Some people think that he's talking about um, dissecting, like a surgeon does, rightly dissecting and cutting away something that needs to be cut out. Either way, this this we get it translated just as simply rightly handle the word of truth. Uh, it's this idea that Timothy... Is doing something very, very important, and yet also maybe a little dangerous. When he opens up Scripture, he's got to rightly handle. He's got to dissect carefully, lest he cause more harm. Um, this is this is what we try to do in preaching. We try to rightly handle the Word of God. One of the interesting things about this passage is that we see Scripture in verse 15 talking about itself as Scripture. You know, this is Paul writing. He thinks this is going to be scripture. And he says, when you're talking about my other writings, when you're talking about scripture, make sure you treat it like it is scripture. Rightly handle the word of truth. It's really interesting. You know, to the skeptic, uh, we, 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 the, the Bible itself right here is arguing that the Bible is authoritative. To the skeptic, that's circular logic. I mean, it kind of is circular logic. And it's never going to be able, we are never going to be able to convince you. I can never convince you from scripture That scripture is true. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But if you're willing to believe, if you're willing to listen, if we think that there's something beneficial in here, then scripture itself is saying this is inspired. Scripture itself is saying this is true. This is a word of truth that is to be rightly handled. He's going to tell us in the next chapter that all of scripture is breathed out by God, is inspired, is profitable for teaching and correction and reproof. You know, that's one of the main points in this letter is that when we don't know where to turn, God's word is a really important place to start. When we don't know what our foundations are, God's word is is sort of the foundation for us today. In verse 16, he goes on to tell him how to watch his mouth, to tell him how to talk. He says, avoid irreverent babble. That just means uh, meaningless words. Stay away from empty, vain words that don't do anything and don't mean anything. Um, He's not talking here about how to speak in all of the Christian life. This is an important distinction. This does not mean you can that, that this does not mean you have to only speak about the Bible for all of your life forever. That would result in us being very boring people, I think. Um, <laughs> It it, it also, I don't think, means that we shouldn't have room for jokes in sermons. Maybe we shouldn't, but uh, that's not what this passage is saying. You know, you might think my sermon's full of irreverent babble. It might be, um, but that's not what the passage is actually getting at. He's actually, we'll see it in just a second as we keep on reading. He's talking here about a specific false teaching. He's talking about how we speak in the church in regards to some specific false teaching. And and with each of these commands, you know, don't quarrel about words, rightly handle the word of truth, avoid irreverent babble, he gives us reasons. He says, don't do this because here's the result. He says, this is talking that is pointless. And he says it spreads like gangrene. Ugh. Gangrene... Actually, we've got a picture we can show I'm just kidding. No. Um, No pictures. But he says that this irreverent babble Uh, it it creates poison, it creates infection in the church. And we're we're still maybe hopefully asking this question, what on earth is he talking about? Is this like a Bible, like, you know, in Bible study when someone kind of says something, we're like, that was not right. Is that what he's talking about here? No, that is not what he's talking about here. Um, Man, one of my favorite youth worker mentors says, if you're not getting a little bit of heresy at youth group, then you're probably not doing your job right. You know, there should be, in a good Bible study, there's plenty of room for people kind of fleshing things out, working on what they believe and why they believe it. Uh, And when people do that, they're going to say things that are like, yeah, that's just, that's heresy, that's not right. Uh, That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about something quite different. Um, he, He says, there's a dangerous teaching, there's something that is categorically wrong that Timothy's encountering. And it's so wrong that Timothy, he needs to refute it, absolutely. He needs to explain that it's wrong and it's false. But then he needs to be careful to not continue to engage in it because it's going to just cause more infection in the church. So what on earth is he talking about? Uh, he's talking about this, this idea, and we'll get to it in our next section, but this idea that was spreading around that, you know, there was no resurrection, uh, or that the resurrection had already happened. That, that shows up down in verse 18. So he's talking about this baseline wrong heresy that's actually being taught by some, some religious teachers. It's being taught by kind of pastors and teachers in the church. Um, and this is always, this, this Paul saying, Timothy, don't engage with this stuff. This is kind of always how Paul responds to when people distort the gospel. You know, maybe you remember in the beginning of Galatians when Paul's running in in, in the church in Galatia, he's running into some people who are just completely mumbling and fumbling and lying about the, the basic manner of the gospel. He, they're saying that we have to do something to be saved. And Paul says that's not at all the case. For Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But if even we, or even an angel of heaven, should preach, you, preach to you a gospel contrary um, to the real gospel, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's strong words. Uh, this is how Paul always uh, speaks about fundamental heresies. You know, this, this basic core truth we hold as Christians, the gospel. The cross reminds us of it, it's on the wall. This basic idea that Jesus came and he died for us, that he, he came back from the dead and that we will also be resurrected again from the dead like him. And that he does all this as a free and gracious gift for you and for me. That basic idea, the gospel, is something we don't have even the option in scripture to, to mess around with. We can't change those categories. That is fundamental to who we are as a church and what we believe. And he says, actually don't even bother debating that fundamental truth with people if they come and they're preaching something different than that don't engage with it that's just absolute silliness instead um, you know we should engage on other things there's kind of three big categories in the New Testament for different levels of not good things that we hear different levels of bad teaching uh, the first is kind of what we're talking about here what when Paul just when we hear things that are just just blatantly not the gospel. They are a core issue to the gospel. In this passage, we'll talk about it more. It's going to be the idea that there is no resurrection of the dead. That is a core, central gospel issue. We have to understand that it's wrong, and why, and then move on. There's, there's not like a, a place where, well, we can agree to disagree. Like, no, that just is the gospel. We're not changing that. The second category, that's heresy. The second category is sort of just misunderstandings, about how this all works. This is where Paul spends, like, this is where the New Testament spends most of its ink. You know, I'm thinking about the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 tell us in great detail how the gospel works. They start with this picture of, yeah, you've been saved by grace through faith. And then they tell us for the remaining 10 chapters of Romans 2 through 11 how on earth that unfolds, and how that works for us, and the fact that it's not about our choice, it's about God's choice, the fact that it happens through Adam collectively. They tell us all these wonderful things. This is like the main category where we dig in as a church. This is not core gospel truths, but this is unpacking those, this is applying those. And when we do that, there's a lot of just education that happens here. And so Paul spends most of his time not addressing just heresy, but addressing how does salvation actually work and happen? And what do you do about that as Christians? That's the New Testament in general. That's what it's addressing. And then there's this third camp of things that we hear that we also might sometimes be tempted to call false teaching, which is just matters of opinion, right? What kind of hymns should we sing on Sunday morning? Should I wear robes or not? You know, like these are, these are questions that every church is going to answer differently. Uh, every person in the pews is going to probably answer differently. In in the Bible, there's multiple times in the New Testament where he, where, where Paul or other people will say, "Well, this is my opinion, but it's not, I'm not binding you to it." Um, so there's kind of these three big categories of false teachings, heresy, things that are just blatantly wrong according to the core foundation that we have in Christ. Misunderstandings or, or just educating on how to live out the gospel, and then. Things that are just matters of personal conviction or personal preference. And and in this passage, we have to ask, which one is he dealing with? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 17, uh, the second part, starts to tell us about this. He says, These people have been doing some false teaching. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection's already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. See, Paul here is talking about a specific, like, heresy, class one level, um, gospel central issue. They're saying that the resurrection has already happened. You know, this isn't a generic Christian debate about what do we really mean by sanctification. This isn't some sort of debate about, like, how the, the stages of how we get saved. This isn't some debate about how best to pray. This is core to what we believe as Christians. They're saying the resurrection has already happened, which is confusing. Um, you know, and this is being taught, too. This is important, another important distinction here. These, are, these guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, these aren't just people in a Bible study. These aren't kids in the youth group. These are people traveling around and teaching the church and continuing to hammer down on this stuff. All the way back in 1 Timothy, written probably, presumably a couple of years before this letter. Hymenaeus gets referenced. Uh, he says in First Timothy 19 that uh, that by rejecting the gospel, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Love that language, super colorful. Uh, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Man, we're getting uh, into some Bible-thumping stuff, talking about Satan today. Um, He says, this guy, Hymenaeus, has continued to teach this wrong, false teaching. And it's so important that Paul says there's nothing to do for this guy except to hand him over to Satan and hope that maybe that will bring him to repentance. When we encounter things that strike at the fundamentals, at the foundation of what we believe as Christians, on some level we have to say, I'm sorry, that's foundational. We're not going anywhere on that. Jesus died, he was buried, and he came back again from the dead. Uh, this, is, this resurrection is essential to our faith. This is how Paul confronts Peter back in Galatians and in Acts. So what are they saying that's so bad? Let's maybe spend a, a little bit of time there. They're saying that the resurrection has already happened. You know, so the resurrection, in case you're not familiar, that's a bit of a churchy word. That's this idea that we after we die, we come back from the dead. As crazy as that sounds, as like much of its own that's a miracle. That's that might be a stumbling block for you. I hope it's not, but that that is a crazy thing and that is at the core of what we believe as Christians. That after we die, we get to come back from the dead again. There's a resurrection from death into a new life. Now it's not exactly like a reanimating a corpse or something, that's not what we're talking about, but, but that there is a second life for us as Christians. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 addresses this idea exactly, because as they received this gospel, um, you know, originally, as this news first went out to people, that idea that we're going to wait you're telling me we're going to come back from the dead people rightly were saying are you sure about that like that sounds really crazy sometimes as church people we probably don't spend long enough thinking about how crazy that is that at the core of what we're doing here on sundays is celebrating the fact that we're going to die and come back again from the dead Uh, but in first in in corinth there was a false teaching that, that questioned that they're like are you sure are you sure and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, he says, now, well, here's why you need to believe this. Here's why we know this is true. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, if Jesus, if our cross is empty, because Jesus came back from the dead, then how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Jesus has come back from the dead, right? See the logic here? If, there's, if, there's, if no one can come back from the death, then that would mean that Jesus didn't come back from the dead, verse fourteen. And if Christ hasn't been raised, it raised from the dead, if Jesus didn't come back from death, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't really die, didn't really come back to life again, then like the whole, all the authority, our foundation as a church, our foundation in what we believe, is all in vain. It's all pointless. Like there's no authority to Scripture. There's no meaning to any of this um, if if Jesus didn't really come back from the dead. He says we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ. But if this is true, if that was true, then He didn't raise Him, and the dead are not raised. And if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And then then that would mean that those who have fallen asleep, people who have died in Christ. They've actually died forever. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if, it's, if there is no heaven, then we of all people are most to be pitied. So this is really heavy stuff. If we don't believe that there's actual resurrection from the dead, he says all the rest of this is completely pointless. Maybe you're feeling, the room feels kind of stiff right now. Like, maybe you're feeling kind of somber about that. Like, do I really believe this? That might be the, the main thing you need to think about today. If, we've, if you don't really believe that there's resurrection from death, that we come back to life again in some form, um, you know, how we can explain that, that's a complicated thing to explain what that's going to look like. But if we don't believe in that, then, like, kind of want to ask, why are you here? This is what Paul says. Like, if we don't believe that we come back from the dead, then like, wh- why are you a Christian? You're not a Christian. Like, why, why would you come to church? Why would we believe in scripture? This is the core claim of the gospel, that Jesus came back from life, back from death. And, and yet this was, this foundational truth, this like fundamental miracle is what was being questioned uh, here. That's what he's addressing in in 2nd Timothy. Important to note, you know, we're never saved by understanding doctrine. We're never saved by understanding how this all works. We're only saved by faith. We're only saved by believing it. So if you're sitting there like, I'm losing my mind. I don't know how this works. That is not my goal. Uh, Let me reassure you with, we're not called to understand every bit of how this resurrection from the dead thing works. We're called to put our faith in it, and my favorite picture of faith is what we just saw a minute ago: Margot leaning on Gabby, a baby leaning on its mother, saying, "I trust in you." That—that uh, that is what faith looks like. So, if—if if you're losing your mind a little bit there, uh, this resurrection from the dead thing, we don't have to understand all the intricacies of how that works. We just have to have faith um, in in Christ, and that faith is a very simple and easy thing. It is not something that has to totally align with our brains. We hope it will. That's, that's what I want to do all the rest of the weeks. You know, that's what I, why I wake up to be a pastor. But uh, it's faith that saves us, not understanding. So he says this, this foundation, a foundational truth, or part of it, is that we are going to be coming back from death itself. You know, we read the Apostles' Creed earlier. That's a, a summary of a lot of our foundational truths. That's a summary that's almost two thousand years old. It's been around for over a thousand years, almost two, of what Christians have kind of always and everywhere believed about um, the gospel. It's a summary of some of the things, you know. It, it's answering this basic question that this tr- challenge they had when they put it together: What do we actually believe? What are the things that like we're really, really sure about these things? These are so important that if we don't believe these, actually maybe we can't say we're a Christian. You know, I used to work with this ministry in the National Parks, and the only thing you had to agree to to work in that ministry was to check a box online that you affirm the Apostles' Creed. Uh, It was kind of challenging. It was like checking a box saying that you accept the terms and conditions on something. Uh, Because some of the people, I don't think, really believed in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, But the Apostles' Creed, in theory, is a pretty good thing. It's a pretty helpful baseline for what we agree to. It's something that... At least in theory, you know, we as a Presbyterian church or a Baptist church or a Catholic church um, or a non denominational church, that they would all agree to the Apostles' Creed. So, what's actually in there? Well, one of the lines near the end says, you know, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That's kind of what is at stake in this passage here. These people were saying that the resurrection already happened. They were saying kind of that, you know, it wasn't really going to happen because it had already kind of spiritually happened maybe. We're not quite sure what they were getting at. But they didn't believe in that line, the resurrection of the body. That's something that we affirm that we believe in. And this is a, when, when there's a statement of faith that churches have agreed across denominations and across cultures and languages and time, we would do well to To also believe it, and if we don't, we would do. We would really want to make sure that we're really confident in why we don't believe it. Uh, But hopefully, we do. The Apostles' Creed is really a helpful tool. It's it's not scripture, but it's helpful summary of what scripture teaches. You know, it's kind of like to ignore some of these fundamental truths. I grew up in a tradition that we bounced around a little bit between churches, but uh, I didn't really have much love or care or appreciation for the Apostles' Creed uh, or church history in general. I kind of knew they existed, but I didn't really care about them. Similar to maybe the way we treat physics. I'm thinking about speed limits while we're driving. You know, like you don't have to like love to the the way you understand acceleration and miles per hour. And what does that really? It means that one mile is crossed every how many? You know, like we don't have to understand units in order to operate in a society where we say like, okay, well the speedometer was under that many miles per hour. Uh, we, we do need to understand them enough to make sure that we stay within the rules, though. The Apostles' Creed is a very, very basic speedometer for us, a very, very, very basic tool that tells us, here's some fundamental guidelines. If we are not affirming these, or we don't understand them, those are things we should probably maybe stop and think about, just throwing that out there. Uh, if you read anything in there and you're like, I'm not sure about that, I would love to talk to you more about it and help you understand those. Um, So we look forward to a physical resurrection of the dead. That is, if you haven't heard anything else for the last couple minutes of rambling, hear that. As Christians, we look forward to a physical resurrection of the dead for believers. That that hope is coming. These false teachers were saying it had already happened, maybe spiritually, or we don't know what they meant. Well, we look forward to a physical resurrection of the dead, and that is such a fundamental, foundational belief that if you don't believe that, that is a real challenge. (laughs) That is a real challenge, and Paul says we should be careful even in how we engage in trying to prove that. I don't know how else to prove that. Uh, (laughs) Otherwise, it might spread like gangrene. So we look forward to that. We believe that this resurrection is yet to come, and that matters in case you haven't caught on yet. That matters because we know we're going to die. That matters because we care about people who have died. Everyone in the room has some people that, man, pain pain and death is really hard to deal with. And, And when we believe in the resurrection of the dead, we have hope that they didn't die in vain. They're not dead forever. But we have a new life in Christ. This is it's it's not only just academically important this is really comfort wise important this is essential to what we believe when we when we go through hardship when we see death in our lives that that's not it there is something else we're hoping for there is a resurrection of the dead and and verses 14 to 17 tell us you know don't quarrel about that stuff don't engage in that stuff it's so true It's so fundamental. It's so foundational that it's part of the foundation. Don't start cutting up your foundation. We need need that to stay intact. Uh, So what is that foundation? Let's continue on to verse 19. Verse 19. This is kind of the subtext for our whole series. And it comes from this verse right here, kind of at the center of this letter to a church in crisis. Um, It says, verse 19, God's firm foundation stands. God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal, the Lord knows who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You know, let's just think about that first part. God's firm foundation stands. There's a house uh, a couple streets over from us that we walk past every now and then. A couple months ago, it burned down mostly to, it's just foundation. There's a little bit of Uh, framing left. And like most houses in Arizona, the foundation is pretty simple. It's just a huge concrete slab. And after it burned down, I don't know if they got insurance money or what, but now they're in the process of rebuilding it. And they didn't have to tear apart the slab. The foundation was fine. So they're reframing it and now they've got a roof going on and they're going to rebuild this house because the foundation stands. Um, When our foundation, our foundations are things that can't and shouldn't move our foundations are rock solid you know there's a song about the guy building his house on the sinking sands and the and the, the bible verses about that our foundation you know we're reminded multiple times uh, that our foundation uh, the cornerstone of the church is is christ our foundation is the cornerstone is that first piece of the 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 foundation, and, you know, if you're building a square, you got to start in one of the corners, and that cornerstone is one of those squares, and the whole rest of it is set off of that. It's all relative to that one cornerstone. So the foundation is is many things, but the cornerstone is Christ, Christ Jesus. First um, Corinthians three: No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of Our faith, foundation of the church, foundation of our lives. Um, We try so often. You all know this to be the case. You try, we try to define ourselves in so many different ways, in different ages and stages. That looks like different things, right? When you're in school, it's grades or athletics. You know, maybe it's who you're dating as a young adult, or maybe who you're married to. Maybe it's your kids or your career. Uh, maybe it's how well your kids are doing as adults, or how poorly they're doing, or, or your hobbies, the things you're interested in, your legacy that you've left behind. All of these are wonderful things. But if any of those is your foundation, you've got to know it's not going to stick around. You know And those things change with stages, They change with time. They're wonderful things, but they cannot uh, they will not stay as our foundation. Our foundation always has to be Christ. And Christ crucified. You know, um, we, we tend towards what feels safe with our foundations. And scripture says, you know, that it doesn't matter what feels good. This is what what is true. Uh, here's here's Jesus. And, and then on this foundation in this passage is something really interesting. He says, when they poured this concrete slab, they laid this stone of the church. They put a big stamp on it. They put a seal on it. Um, and what does the seal say? I, I love this. It's this very Pauline that he does this. He, he, instead of just comforting us and saying there's a foundation and it's not moving anywhere, he has to tell us what it means, too. He says there's something written on this, uh, and it says two things. It says, the Lord knows who are his, and then it says, basically, his people are going to follow him. The Lord knows who his people are, and his people are going to follow him. You know, the, these two ideas kind of can be summarized that the Lord preserves his people and his people will persevere. Um, the Lord knows who his people are. Some of you just got really nervous because that sounds a lot like election. You know, like that. That's what it is talking about, though. He says, God knows the people he chose before the foundation of the world. God knows. Who his followers are God chose you before your grandparents were born before they had thought of you before the United States was around before Jesus came God said I choose you to be my child before the foundations of the world were laid I chose you uh, God said I I'm gonna actually send my son to die for you I'm gonna shed my own blood for you uh, the, the the picture that Scripture uses over and over again is that we were dead in our trespasses, and yet He said, "I'm going to revive you. You know, I'm going to bring you back from death itself, <laughs> like Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus doesn't sit in the tomb and say like, well, do I want to do I want to come out of the tomb or not?'" Jesus said, come out of the tomb. Like, should I? Do I believe in him? Like, do I have enough faith to come out of the tomb? No, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And then Lazarus comes right out. He's alive again. He's dead. And then he's alive. This is us. God has chosen us and he knows who his people are. He knows who his people are. And he's going to stand by them. He's going to stand by them. He, he preserves his people. Um, this was, Paul brings this up because it's comforting. Paul brings this up and says, as your foundations are chipping, as you think they might be shattering, remember this, God knows who his people are and he will stand by them no matter what. The same God who defeats death itself knows who you personally are. This same God who can come back from the dead promises this for you because he knows who his people are. He knows you. And I want to pause here, you know, we're talking about what we might call Reformed theology. Um, that's, that's important, it's true, it's what we believe as a church, we're not going anywhere on that. That's also something that, like, maybe you're not there with me on, that's alright. <laughs> that, I think it's what scripture says, but uh, that's okay if you're not there. Just want to put that caveat, we can differ on Reformed theology and still be friends and worship together. Um, but it's part two of the seal. Part two of the seal says something equally challenging to us and yet I think even more comforting. He says those who name the name of the Lord are not are, are, are going to depart from iniquity. Those who know God are actually going to leave sin. Iniquity, avone, this word for crookedness. Think about like Scrooge or something. He's crooked and gross and twisted. Um, this word for iniquity is sin. This is what comes between us and God and it's so deep that it means our hearts are actually warped and twisted. Um he says, the people who know God, his people, are going to depart from iniquity. They're going to part, depart, they're going to leave sin itself. This is amazing hope, because maybe you're saying, like, well, the God knows who his people are, and I want to follow God, but I'm kind of really bad at that. You know, that's that's sort of the whole Christian life, us saying, I want to follow Jesus. Well, dang it, I'm really bad at doing so. Um, I want to follow Jesus. I think I have faith in him. And yet it seems like I just can't, cannot get out of the muck and mire of my own sinful desires, my own heart. And there's this hope right here, stamped on the very foundation of the church, saying God knows who his people are and his people are going to depart from sin. This is the idea of perseverance, right? That God's people are going to persevere, even when you're not sure you're going to stick it out, God is sure you're going to stick it out. There's, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Not even yourself. <laughs> That's sort of what he's getting at here. That, that God's people will depart from iniquity. Uh, this, is, this is like absolutely a, a huge beacon, it should be, of hope for us. This is a, a, a message of comfort, saying that when we face hard times... Even if we're not sure that we're going to make it, God is. God is sure of where we're going to go in this. God God straightens out our crookedness. God God straightens out our sin and says, my people are going to depart from iniquity. Um, So how on earth does any of that foundation relate to number 16? That's what I want to think about now for a couple minutes. If at number sixteen, you know the story about Korah's rebellion and the showdown between Aaron, his foundational priest, versus Korah over here. Well, Paul's actually quoting from that passage. He's quoting from that passage in the seal. Um, right when he, when there's this great big showdown, you know Moses confronts these men who want to claim wrongly the priesthood, who are refusing to submit to the Lord, and. He says this in Deuteronomy 16.5 when they're standing there calling out Aaron as a false priest, essentially. He says, you know, well, the Lord knows who are his. It's the same thing that's written on that seal, that foundation of the church. The Lord knows who are his. And (laughs) these men challenging Aaron, Korah, they have to like shake a little bit in their boots because they're not his, apparently. Uh, It's the same same verse Paul's quoting this story, and he reminds us that God knows his foundation. But these guys in Numbers, they're not convinced. They're like, I don't know, I'm pretty sure it's me. I'm pretty sure that Aaron's a bad priest and we should challenge him. And so they they line up, they get ready for this big challenge, and right as they're ready, Moses is going to pray and ask God to come in and act. Moses gives the people of Israel this big warning. He says, God's people, get away from them, depart from their iniquity, lest you be swept with them, away with them. So they got away. This is uh, verse 26 of number 16. This is, again, a, something Paul is quoting in the Second Timothy passage. He quotes the "depart from iniquity," and he says, "They departed from them." So it's this idea that, that there's these false teachers, and God's people actually listened and they saw and they got away from them, they departed. They weren't sure where they were going to go, but in the end, they did depart from iniquity. He's quoting that. And so what happens in number 16? Moses says, uh, verse 28, Here, here's how you're going to know God's foundation, his authority. Here, here's how you'll know the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these guys, sons of Korah, false priests, die as all men die, or if they're visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord hasn't sent me. Then I'm just a hoax. Call me what I am. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then Hebrew word for hell kind of, uh, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And can you guess what happens? The ground opens up and swallows them, and they go down. It's, amazing. It's, it's kind of horrifying. We should maybe pause to think about that a little more. But I'm not going to pause there. It, it's a little bit horrifying, but it's also crazy. You know, it's another of these miracles that we sometimes have a hard time with. The, the, the ground opens up, it swallows them, and it shows us in Old Testament dramatic fashion, God's foundation is with Aaron. God's foundation, God's priesthood is with Aaron. His authority was with Moses. Uh, This is not something we can question. Why does Paul point us to this story in the middle of a hard time as a church? Why does Paul point us here when we're questioning false teaching? Well, I think hopefully you can see a little bit of it, right? He, he, He tells them, he's telling them that like Moses and Aaron, how their authority was challenged, Paul and Timothy's authority is being challenged in the church. This fundamental doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, it was kind of like, is Aaron really, truly a priest? If we're going to question those things, we're going to start questioning everything. And this is where, as Christians, eventually we're just going to have to say, I have faith, I believe in the Lord. I would love to spend more time trying to convince you of those, but ultimately only faith is going to convince you uh, of the authenticity of this Bible as God's word. Uh, He says this is a very similar situation. He also reminds them, they're going through a church split. They're going through a challenge in Ephesus, Timothy's church, where huge chunks of the people are, are leaving. It says, all who were in Asia left me because Paul was bound up in chains, because they didn't like Timothy, because they, this, these false teachings about the resurrection. And he says, you know, well, there's a huge comfort in this. God's people have always, always wavered. The book of Numbers, if you're working through that, and read the Bible in a year plan or something right now, or it's coming Good luck. You can make it. Uh, but it's it's full of God's people wavering. Like every chapter is God's people wavering. In number, in number 16, right after that story, the, the story continues because the next day they're like, are we really sure it's Aaron, though? Like on the, literally on the next page. And then he has to save them again. Like it's constant. It's the whole book of numbers. And this is comforting for us because that's that's you and me we're saved and we're given grace from the Lord. He says, I know who you are and you're not going to depart from me. And then we're like, are you really sure about that? Are you really sure about this resurrection thing? That sounds pretty crazy. This is, this is us. We are the Israelites over and over and over again. And, and as we look at that, we can hopefully remind ourselves also that this is how grace works. Um, this, this story points us to grace from, from everywhere we look at it, right? God had given grace is this this free gift. God had given his people a way to worship through a priest, a people who had no heart for worship, no heart to desire him. And he had said, here's Aaron. Uh, Aaron had messed up repeatedly. He's the one who built the golden calf. And he said, I'm, yeah, well, I'm going to stick with Aaron. I'm going I'm to forgive him. There's grace there. Um, God gives them grace when he says, hey, I'm going to open up the literal earth and send these Korah guys down. Do you, you might want to get away from them. There's grace in that. Uh, there's grace for Paul. Paul says, you know, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm a blasphemer. He was teaching fundamentally wrong, heretical things. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he says, I'm going to come and meet you in that. Uh, there's face, grace for, for um for their hearers, there's grace as they try to listen to God's word. There's grace as they're warned over and over again of these fundamental truths. Uh, there's grace as they are forgiven, as they mess up. There's grace for us. You know, there's grace as we question maybe even some of these foundational things. There, scripture is full of lament. It's full of places for, for doing that. And uh, God says, even if that's you right now, I am here I know who you are and I'm, you are not gonna depart from me. God says, I will preserve you and you will persevere. Uh, there's grace for us and grace continues to abound as we look to our cornerstone, as we look to Jesus. We know that through all else, uh, God's firm foundation stands. He, it remains resolute. There is a, even if the whole house burns down, there is still a foundation, a foundation of faith that is not going anywhere. Uh, It's not shaking, and God will continue to work um, in our lives. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.